where we begin, they have just celebrated the most important celebration of Jewish faith, the Passover. And for the apostles and Jesus, it was the most intimate Passover meal they had ever had. In the three years of ministry together, they had shared three or two, at least a couple of previous Passovers before this. And so now here they are in Jerusalem. They've shared the last Passover. Jesus has done some stunning things. Jesus declared that the bread, the, the afikoman, was His body. And He passed it around for them to eat. And He declared that the wine, the cup of redemption, was, was His blood, representative of the death that was about to happen. They didn't even understand, didn't know that was going to happen within hours of Jesus making this proclamation. So it was a... An intimate, confusing to a degree, maybe a little weird, final Passover that the apostles were privileged to spend with Jesus. I believe that it was a Passover they would never forget. That they would return to, not just once a year as in the annual Jewish tradition, but they would return to it every single time they broke bread. Every time they drank of the wine together. And I believe it was often... I believe it was more often, personally, I think it was a lot more often than just the first day of the week. Jesus said, every time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. And I have a feeling that these, these early Christians gathered together in each other's homes and broke bread and shared wine as a matter of practice. You know, you get together with Christian brothers and sisters and you're going to go out on the town maybe for an evening. <laughs> out on the town, Oak Harbor, Anacortes, big towns. But you're going to go out, you're going to do something, or maybe you're going to have someone in for a meal together. In the first century, I'm convinced that often... They were breaking the bread and sharing the wine and remembering Jesus as often as they could because He was everything to them. Is He everything to you? Is He everything to me? Well, I believe at this point in time, at that last Passover, He was everything to the apostles, at least to the eleven that made it all the way through that meal. And we're told in verse 30 that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said this to them. He said, You will all fall away because of Me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Can it be any more clear? After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. And they ought to realize that once prophecy has been spoken, it's going to happen. And Jesus quotes prophecy here. He goes all the way back to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Which reads, I'll start in verse 6. One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms, or literally, hands? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Literally, the house of those who love me. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. Zechariah prophesied that. 450 Well, between four and seven hundred years. Let's just say that. I can't remember the exact distance. About four hundred to five hundred years before this night happened. And so Jesus quotes this prophecy. And He personalizes it. The prophecy in Zechariah 13 that He quotes, verse 7, is actually sandwiched between the first half of Zechariah 13, 
where the Lord is pronouncing judgment on false prophets. And the last half of Zechariah 13, where He is pronouncing a foreshadowing of the fallenness of Israel. The false prophets leading Israel into a fallen state. And in between is that verse, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But did you catch Jesus' words here? He said, you will all fall away. It's not just Judas. It's not just Peter. In fact, Peter ironically jumps up and declares, even though all these guys fall away, I won't fall away. You can almost see him kind of siding up to Jesus and going, I'm with you, Lord. I don't know about them, but I am here to stand with you. If you're a note-taker, I'll give you some things to jot down. Number one, Jesus foretold their failure. He foretold their failure, all of them. Each of the eleven, the twelve, including Judas, each and every one of them, even the disciple whom he loved, his precious friend John, all of them would fall away that night. All of them did. Now, I'm sure Peter spoke with absolute confidence. I can really imagine myself in that same place, hearing Jesus say that, being one of the eleven that are left there with him, and saying, no way, Lord. No, we won't leave you. We got your back. We're here with you. I've said as much in my life. Not me, Lord. I won't be the pastor who does that. I won't be the Christian who does that. I won't be the person who who fails in that. that. Not me, Lord. I've known the same confidence that Peter had, the promise, the guarantee, I will not let the Lord down. I've known that until I let Him down. Those are hard moments. I mean, those are tough moments for every one of us. And there's not one of us in here who hasn't experienced it. If we're being true to ourselves, we know we have all let Him down. We have all been in the place that Peter was in. I won't let you down, but we do. All fall away. No one who loves Jesus gets up in the morning determined to let Him down. Nobody who truly cares about Jesus wants to abandon Him, but all will fall away. All of us. That Greek word, fall away, we've heard it before. It's scandalizo, where we get our word scandalize. And it means to be offended or to stumble over or to be entangled by. And remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the cross is an offense. It is the scandalon. The cross in and of itself is offensive. It is the stumbling block. And people trip over it and misunderstand it are entangled by it because, and listen to this, because the cross is the single greatest reminder of our sin. That's why some people don't want to talk about the cross at all. That's why when we look at the cross, there is an ache that accompanies it for a faithful believer. Because the cross is the worst picture of sin that we have. It is what happens. It is the end result of sin. And sometimes I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to be told that I'm going to fail. When I've heard that in my life, it makes me get my back up. Don't you tell me I'm going to fail. That's going to make me work that much harder. That's where Peter is. I'm not going to fall, Lord. Not me. I will be the one who stands. And I like when Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9. I like being called a chosen race. Yeah. A royal priesthood. That's me. A holy nation. Sign me up. A people for God's own possession. That is Rick. Man, that's me right there in a nutshell. He's just described me beautifully. I like that designation. That's the good stuff. And you know what? It's true. But the Word also warns us, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
It's not in our weakness that we tend to fall. Man, when we're in those weak places, we're, we're pretty alert. It's in our strength. It's in our power. It's when we think we've got it together. That's the most dangerous place to be. In our arrogance, in our confidence. Unless that confidence is in Jesus. Peter would say, man, you've got to be vigilantly aware. Paul would say this, you've got to be vigilantly aware of the fact that you're not as strong as you think you are. Take heed, lest you fall. The question was raised again this week. I remember being a young man and uh, struggling early on. Just not, I wasn't an angry guy, but, but having outbursts of anger. And it was just the passion. You know, it was probably more hormonal than anything else. And I remember thinking, how do I get over this? Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I wish that I could, could, could get beyond this, this place. And what I didn't know now, but what I, know, what I didn't know then, what I know now, is it's a process of maturing. That you do begin to calm down <laughs> over time. You do begin to, as you trust the Lord more, hopefully, I don't know, maybe not everybody, Cheryl's going, wait, was it just last week that you blew up? No. It takes time, but it takes the realization more than anything else that you are not as strong as you think you are. We don't just overcome by our power. None of us. I thought this was interesting. We read this verse recently. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, chapter one, or verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And I hear that and think, yes, we who are spiritual, I who are spiritual, will restore such a one in gentleness. So as each of you fall, and you will, I'll be there to restore you. Because I'm a spiritual guy. Listen to what Paul continues to say after that. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We took Corey down to DigiPen down in Redmond this last weekend. And we sat down with the founder of DigiPen, who also is the guy who created The Legend of Zelda and the Mario games. No, no, Pokemon and Metroid Prime. I mean, this guy is impressive in the whole video gaming world. Wow. And he stood up and gave a speech, and by the time he was done, I didn't want to go to DigiPen. Because he says, you, have, you all at this point feel like you've accomplished something, and you have by being you know, accepted into this school. You know, props, Corey. You've been accepted. Great for you. He says, on day one of your classes, you are nothing. Everything you know is Nothing. It's our job to teach you what you need to know, but you're nothing. And I thought, wow, that's it. And when I come to Christ, I'm nothing. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I don't even have the, the ability. Once I say, Lord, I'll stand with you, I don't have the ability to do it. If I stand with Him, if I am kept, it's only because He keeps me. It's only because I'm trusting in Him. Jesus, by the way, He doesn't foretell the apostles' failure as a precursor to a guilt trip. You're all going to fall away from me. When you do, I'm going to come back with the biggest, fattest, I told you so you've ever heard. That's not his heart. He tells them because he loves them. You're going to fall away. I'm letting you know right now it's going to happen. We know this because he doesn't just foretell their future, he also regards their reunion. Jesus regards their reunion. That's the second thing to know. Look at verse 32 again. 
But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I mean, one little sentence, and I'm sure it was lost to them because they were trying to figure out the first part, but a promise. I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. We will be together again. You're going to fall, and it's not going to be pretty, but I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And we will meet up together then again. I'll meet you back at the old stomping grounds. When you think it's over, when you think you're at your worst, guess what? It ain't over. When you deserve rejection, you're going to receive restoration. When you think you've gone too far, I will be right there to bring you back. Now there's a parallel verse to Zechariah's prophecy of the scattered sheep, and it's over in Ezekiel 34. Flipping your Bibles back there, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. If your uh, Bibles have a little header in them, you'll notice it says prophecy against the shepherds of Israel because the shepherds of Israel, those leaders, were doing a lousy job. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You who eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface, all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Now listen to this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture." And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed... By the way, just side note, the mountains of Israel, you know what that is? It's the West Bank. It's the West Bank. That's where Israel is going to be fed. It's not Palestinian territory, gang. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them 
with judgment. I read that to you just to say this, the Lord restores His scattered sheep. The sheep are scattered. The shepherd is struck. And that night the apostles scatter. But with the exception of Judas, every single other one, all of the eleven, are restored and go on to lives of rich and full and fruitful ministry as shepherds themselves over the flock of God. And there's only one reason for it. It's not because they picked themselves up off the ground and went their way. It's because the Lord picked them up. It's because Jesus gathered those eleven again going ahead of them into Galilee, pulled them together and restored them, and He has done the same thing for you and for me. You know, Jesus regards our reunion. Why is it we talk about His second coming so much? Because He thinks about it all the time. He regards our reunion. He points us to His coming as our great hope. And no matter how bad a day you're having, you can always stop in the midst of any situation and say, My King is coming back, and I will be restored unto Him. Praise God. He's coming. He's going ahead of us. And He's going to receive us to Himself. It's my great hope. Peter calls it the living hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Jesus says the sheep are going to be scattered. And Jesus says we will have a reunion. But let me ask one quick question here. Why is it that we scatter so easily? I was thinking tonight, and I don't know any other way to say this without it sounding like judgment, and I don't mean it to sound like judgment. I really don't. But I think it's interesting that when we were in Matthew 24, there were hundreds of people in here. When we were talking about end times prophecy, oh, that was time to show up. Find out. It's ear-tickling. It's exciting. It's fantastic stuff. Two chapters later, here we are in Matthew 26, when the sheep scatter from the shepherd. And we're a little more scattered tonight. Now why is that? And I, I put it to you, I believe there's one very simple reason, and it's the exact same reason why the apostles scattered on that night. Well, why is that, Rick? Exhaustion. Just too tired. I'd be there. And again, it's not a plug for being here Wednesday night. You're here because you want to be here. Amen? Good. <laughs> and there are Wednesdays. Where the day is long and hard and exhausting. And I know the last thing someone wants to do is get in the car and get to Bible study when it's just easier to get on the pajamas and get in front of the TV. Exhaustion. I believe exhaustion, gang, is one of the greatest reasons that our spiritual vigilance fails. I believe it was exhaustion was behind the reason why the apostles scattered that night. Rest, Les likes to say rest is a weapon. You've heard him say that before. Rest is a weapon. That's because exhaustion, gang, is a chink in our armor. Exhaustion is a hole in our defense. It makes us vulnerable and susceptible to the enemy. When I'm exhausted, I am much more likely to sin than when I'm wide awake and well rested. It's just true. And I'm not even talking about spiritual generalities. I'm talking physical exhaustion. 
There is something about being well rested in the Lord that gives you strength on a daily basis. And when I'm tired and worn out and stressed out, man, that is a great time for Satan to attack because my armor has empty holes. Bare spots on it. Third thing to note, Jesus exposed exhaustion. Watch this, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. This is Jesus. Grieved and distressed. And then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with Me. It's a very simple request for Peter, James, and John. Keep watch with Me. And He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with Me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember, Jesus had said, you're all going to fall away from me tonight. And now He's saying to them again, pray, keep watch, be alert, that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again, verse 42, a second time, and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. Again, He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And He left them again, and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then He came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus is exposing exhaustion here. Now, you may say, well, Rick, the apostles are sleeping. So isn't that what they should be doing? You say exhaustion's dangerous, so they're sleeping to take care of the exhaustion factor, right? Isn't that what should be going on? Look at the contrast here of how Jesus and the apostles handle exhaustion. They're both exhausted. Both Jesus and the eleven are worn out and weary at this point. Absolutely exhausted. Jesus not only the pressure and the weight of knowing what is coming, of what is bearing down on Him. On top of that, just from a pure physical standpoint, He just spent hours teaching them. At that Last Supper, you can read it, John 14, 15, 16, and 17 is all Jesus teaching. Teaching, 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 teaching. And on Sundays, when I get home at around 1.30 or 2 o'clock, I'm done. I'm spent. And I only do it for two hours. Two hours worth of teaching, and I'm I'm exhausted. All I want to do is nap. It rarely happens. So Jesus is exhausted just physically. On top of that, the emotional distress of knowing what's coming. Well, the apostles are exhausted too. They are worn out with worry. They've been listening to His words, lots of cautions, lots of warnings, lots of you know statements about my death, and, and I'm going to die. I'll be raised, but I'm going to die. And, and they're, they're, they're confused by this. This is my body. This is my blood. What? Ah! And they are worried sick because He's saying things that He didn't say so much three years ago, but now it's all the time, this heavy stuff. 
And they're worried, so they snooze. The, verse 43 says, their eyes were heavy. And that's a phrase in the Greek that indicates a burdened exhaustion. It's not just that you haven't got enough sleep. It's that you've got a heavy weight emotionally on your shoulders. You ever nap when you're worn out like that? You're just stressed out. It's been bad. Too much has been going on. So you take a nap and you wake up and you're in as much of a fog, if not more of a fog, than when you laid down in the first place. How many people here have said, why did I take that nap at all? I've gotten to where I take 10-minute power naps because that's not long enough to get groggy. But part of the problem, gang, when Jesus comes back to them after the first time and the second and the third, and then all of a sudden here comes Judas with the Romans... And the Jewish leaders to arrest Jesus? Guess what? The apostles are in a fog. They're not well rested. They've been snoozing. They've been dozing. Of course, Jesus is experiencing a greater weight of distress than any He had ever felt before in His life on earth. This was the pinnacle. The Greek word used by Matthew here for grieved is lupeo. And lupeo means a painful sorrow. Jesus is in emotional pain. The word distressed is a daemoneo. A a what does that mean? It's full of heaviness and anguish. Listen, do you think that Jesus knows what it's like to be distressed and anguished? Do you think you're the only one who's ever gone through emotional distress and anguish and pain? you think maybe your troubles are worse than His was on that night? Think again. And if nothing else, understand that the worst of your emotional pain and worry was felt by Jesus, and it was felt that night. He was wiped out with this pain. Where did it happen? Gethsemane. In Hebrew, it's Gat Shimonim. Gat Shimonim, which literally means the olive press. It's on the Mount of Olives, so that makes sense. There would be olive presses, at least one, probably several olive presses, right there in Gethsemane. Got Shimonim. There was probably a Hebrew friend of Jesus who knew him because he had access to this garden, a big, beautiful garden, not like it is today. I mean, it's cool to go to Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives today in Jerusalem, and it's cool to see that they have, you know, with a fence around them, some olive trees that are possibly as old as 2,000 years. Some of them may have been standing the night Jesus was betrayed and prayed in the garden, but it was different then. Trees everywhere. It was a beautiful garden filled with those olive trees. And it was the place of the olive press. In Jesus' day, the olive presses were the way that they went about extracting the olive oil. Did you know in a single olive, over half the weight of the olive is oil? And so they would take these olives and they put it in the press. And the olive press in Jesus' day was, again, it had a huge, massive millstone. And usually a big stone kind of circular basin and the millstone would sit in, sit in it and it would slowly roll it around that basin and it would go over the olives and mash them down and typically they would let it sit there for 30 or 40 seconds, roll again, let it sit there, roll again all the way around until they had this paste of olives. And that first rolling, oftentimes that was where they got the best, the most pure virgin olive oil. But to go beyond that, they would take then that olive paste and they would, they would layer it on fibrous disks made of, of some, kind, some kind of plant leaves. They'd layer the disks in round circles and they would place them in the press itself and they would press it down. And that would further separate the oil and the water from inside the olive. It was, a pressing, it was an intense pressure that was used to get that pure oil out. And it's the perfect picture of the pressure 
that Jesus was under in Gat Shemunim on that Thursday night. When He prayed in Gethsemane, the pressure was so intense, so great, that it was the worst He had ever felt. Back in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, the Lord said, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light. I think that's interesting. Beaten olives for the light. To make the lamp burn continually. The light of the world was beaten and pressed under the millstone of the sin of the world. But not in Gethsemane. He was pressed with a different weight there. It would be the sin of the world placed on his shoulders only at Calvary. It didn't happen in Gethsemane. Sin was not forgiven there. Let's make sure that that's very clear. Sin was forgiven on the cross, not in Gat Shemonim. But there in Gethsemane, we're told by Luke in chapter 22, verse 44, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You Bible students have heard this. It's hematidrosis. That process by which capillaries burst in the forehead and the blood gets into the sweat glands and begins to literally sweat out of a person who is under extreme duress. But it has to be absolutely intense. It was the kind of duress Jesus was under. I don't know about you, I've been under some pretty intense duress, but never so much that I sweat blood. And yet that night, Dr. Luke tells us, interesting, Luke was the doctor and he's the one who points this out, that Jesus was sweating blood. And this all went on as the apostles drowsed and dozed. But note this, number four in your notes, Jesus Jesus was restored by restful prayer. And this is what the apostles lacked. Luke 22.43 says, An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. In that moment, Jesus knew what he needed. He was exhausted. He was worried. He was worn out. And he had a long night ahead of him. What did he do? He prayed. He got down on his face before the Lord. And it's what I would call restful prayer. Restful prayer is always better than physical rest when you're facing despair. Restful prayer. Getting away quiet and alone with God. Oh, but Rick, when I'm in that place and I try to pray, I fall asleep. Good. Okay. Man, what better way to fall asleep than talking to the Lord? I shared, I think, a few years back, I, my kids, when they were little, one of my favorite things as a father was talking to them at bedtime late at night until they drifted off. I wasn't offended by that. I wasn't upset. I wasn't like, Corey, wake up! I'm in the middle of a sentence here, man. It was precious to me because the last person they talked to before they fell asleep was Daddy. Restful prayer. Instead of getting off and taking that nap or saying, I I need to take the night off from Bible study, again, I can ask you this, how many of you, by showing up on a Wednesday night when you were too tired to be here, showed up anyway and walked out of here stronger than when you walked in? It's restful to be with the Lord, to hear His Word, to spend time in prayer, and to worship God. These things strengthen us. And it strengthened Jesus that night. An angel literally appears and gives Him strength that He would need for the rest of the evening. But gang, exhaustion coupled with prayerlessness is a deadly combination. Because we don't think clearly. Luke uses the word agony. That Jesus was in agony when He prayed fervently. You know what that word agony... all It's agonia. It's where we get the word from the Greek word agonia. You know what else it means? Not only does it mean severe anguish, it also means a struggle for victory. The agony Jesus was in wasn't just anguish, it was a victorious struggle. As He prayed and prayed intensely that Thursday night. 
Jesus got something the apostles didn't get. They were too tired to pray, too worn to stand, and when the moment of truth came, they fled. That's why we scattered. Because when the moment of truth comes, and when the pressure comes down, if we haven't been prayerful, and it's not a game God's playing, it simply goes to your strength spiritually. If you haven't been with the Lord in quietness and trust, in repentance and rest, Isaiah 30 tells us, that's where you get tripped up. Les and I, we talk about this all the time. The whole idea of pastoring is firefighting, running from one blaze to the next, as opposed to pastoring out of rest and peace. Restful prayer, it's what we need. By the way, how many times did Jesus find Peter and the brothers sleeping? Did you notice that? Three times. And how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. I think there's a parallel there. Had the apostles been in restful prayer on their faces that night rather than on their backs dozing, the sheep might not have scattered so quickly. If you're distressed or worried or tapped out, what you need more than anything else is restful prayer. Take it to the Father. Sit with Him. Open up your Bible. If you're not even sure what to pray, open up the Word. Find a psalm. Psalm 103 is great, just for encouragement. Find a psalm and pray it. Psalm 77, especially if you you feel like God's not even hearing you, pray Psalm 77. Pray the 23rd Psalm, whatever you need to, but be in that place of restful prayer and God will strengthen you. One more question before we move on to the next verse. What was it that distressed Jesus so much in Gethsemane that night? There are different opinions about this. Was it as Mel Gibson portrayed it, that there was a face-off with a terrifying evil that was lurking among the olive trees? with little bugs crawling in and out of her nose. And if you saw the passion, they have this, this characterization of Satan, I guess it is, trying to show the, the face-off between Jesus and Satan in the garden. You know what? The Bible doesn't say that. Well, don't you think Jesus was tempted? Well, there, there's another one. The last temptation of Christ. Maybe he was distressed because he was tempted not to follow through. And it was hard for Jesus. Listen, uh, this is my opinion. But I do not believe Jesus feared Satan in the garden. I do not believe Jesus was sitting there and Satan weaved among the trees going, Oh no, he's there. The pressure is too great. Oh God, give me strength not to be tempted to fall and sin. I don't think that's what was going on at all. Nor was he being tempted. He wasn't being tempted by the evil one, nor, nor did he fear the evil one. Think about what it was Jesus prayed. Look at verse 39 once again. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What did Jesus fear? What was the distress? It was the cup. What cup? I believe the distress of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion was over facing the cup of God's wrath. It was the prospect of the pure and perfect Christ suffering for the sin of the world. That is heavy duty, gang. Psalm 11, verse 6 says, Upon the wicked He will rain fiery coals. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup, the cup of wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. The final seven judgments in the book of Revelation, you know what they are? Bowl judgments. 
where judgment and wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. Isaiah 51.17 Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. The agony of Jesus there in Gethsemane was because He who knew no sin was now going to become sin. He who was perfect and flawless and never separated from God was now going to be the very thing that was most abhorrent to God the Father. Now again, he did not drink the cup of God's wrath until Golgotha, but he had to face it in Gethsemane. And as Jesus faced it, well, Ironside put it this way, because of his infinite purity, he could not contemplate with anything other than horror all that it would mean to be made sin. So we, we can't even get that. I, you, you tell me, Rick, can you imagine sin? And I'm there, baby. I, I can get it in a heartbeat. I understand sin. I get sin. I have sin. I got no problem knowing what it's like to sin. Jesus had never sinned. Jesus was absolute perfection. The only man who ever walked perfect. And now he's facing taking the wrath of God. No wonder he was distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. And that night Jesus chose to drink the cup of wrath so that we might be invited to drink the cup of salvation. Psalm 116.13 I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 23 verse 5 You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Get up then, Jesus said. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. Boy, this, this Galilean rabbi was awfully dangerous, wasn't he? He came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one sees him. Immediately Jesus, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, rabbi! And kissed him. By the way, the Greek there of kissed him indicates kissed him again and again. The right side of the face and the left, and the right and the left affectionately as a friend would kiss a friend in that culture. And interestingly, Jesus says to him, verse 50, Friend, do what you've come for. <laughs> even here, even now, Jesus is still calling Judas friend. Friend, do what you've come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and they seized Him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out His sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off His ear. (laughs) We laugh about this. John lets us know it was Peter who swung the sword. John 18, verse 10. I think that's almost comical that John... Hey, no one else... That was Peter, man. And that needs to go in the record. Peter was the one who hacked off the ear of the slave, of the high priest. But you know what? We need to understand something about Peter. Yes, he's reacting out of sleepy flesh, but you know, at least he did something. And thank God for the Peters in the church who get out there and they do something. They're not sitting back just with... They're willing to go. They're ready to fight. They're ready to stand in a moment's notice. And maybe they stick their feet in their mouth, but they are good to go. And I like that about Peter. But I think Peter's problem, it wasn't a character issue, it was a sleep issue. 
He's still groggy. He's still shaking off the nap and trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus is in trouble. Grab a sword. Hack. And he's not looking. He's not thinking. That's why he goes after the slave of the high priest. What Peter needed was to be prayerful. But instead he dozed. And now, when he needs to be calm, he's hyperactive. He's reacting. He's reactionary. This is a knee-jerk reaction. And gang, flying off the handle is never a healthy spiritual response to anything that goes on in our lives. When we just lose it. (laughs) Fly off the handle, get angry, do something, react, respond quickly, instead of stopping and going, wait a minute. How should I respond here? Lord, what would you have me do? Galatians 5.20 gives a list of the deeds of the flesh. Guess what's dead center in the list? Anger is. Because anger is a fleshly response. Unless it is reasoned out as in Jesus' anger when He cleared the temple, which we know He left until the next day. Reasoned out, processed it was righteous. But anger is listed among the fleshly deeds as compared to the fruit of the Spirit, which includes things like patience, by contrast. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Well, Peter gives the devil an opportunity here. He's swinging the sword. He's flying off the handle. It reminds me, we just talked about this a few months back in 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember the story about Elisha's servant? All the prophecy students of Elisha are building a new school of prophecy. And as they're building it, one of the young guys has, a, has an axe with an axe head on it, and he's swinging, and all of a sudden the axe head flies off and goes into the water. Oh no, this is a big problem. It's not like you could run down to Ace Hardware and get another axe head. And so he goes to Elisha, what do we do? What do we do? And Elisha tells us he cut down a stick of a tree. And when he threw the tree into the water, the axe head floated to the surface. It's one of those great miracles that... Seems like an easy thing, but if you've ever tried to make an axe head float, whether you use ice cream or not, you know, you might have to think about that. Axe head float. Just like the axe head, Peter flew off the handle and was sunk. Just like the axe head, he could only be restored to work again when the tree was applied. By the application of the cross. It was after the cross that forgiveness and restoration would flow again to Peter and Peter then would be restored to his work as a shepherd. And after the cross, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. And Peter says, I love this, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And I wonder when Peter wrote that if he was thinking about the night that he and the other ten sheep were scattered. We were straying like sheep, but we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. So Peter cuts off the ear. And Jesus said to him, verse 52, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Number six, if you've been tracking these things, Jesus arrests fleshly anger. He puts a stop to it immediately. Stop it, Peter. Knock it off. 
Your knee-jerk reactionary behavior is not what we need here. You could blow this whole thing wide open. Don't you know I'm in control? Don't you know right now, even as they come and arrest me, I could call 12 legions of angels and we could be done with the whole thing. This is my plan. Don't fly off the handle. Again, this is really important. When we react, I'm not just talking about a burst of anger here. When we react in a knee-jerk fashion in the flesh, we are ignoring the fact that Jesus has things well in hand. That He has control. And we literally could do some damage. We, you can thwart God's plan for your life. Did you know you could do that? It is not so predetermined that everything God planned for you is just going to happen. You've got to interact. And if you react, you can get off base. Not that the Lord's not going to bring you back. But we can mess up things that God had planned. Peter almost messed it up right here. This could have turned into a big row and everybody stabbed and dead and, and it's over. Right there in Gethsemane. And that was not the plan. And Jesus says, Peter, you're messing with the plan here. Stop being a knee jerk. Verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then, all, underline it, all the disciples left him and fled. They didn't wait until the crucifixion. They didn't wait until the trials. They fled from the garden in that very moment. And Jesus said, this is the way it was supposed to be. He says it twice, by the way, right here. This is all happening to fulfill the Scriptures. Why does He say that? And why does Matthew note that? Because it's yet again proof positive that God has prepared the whole thing that He might be glorified, number one, and that you and I might be saved, number two. From the very beginnings of time, this was laid out exactly as it happened. Now the circus begins with the high priest as the ringleader. Verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests... And the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put Him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. And they said, This man stated I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, which Jesus did say. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Beginning here in verse 57, Jesus is now, and we piece this together from the four Gospels, Jesus is now going to be dragged through six trials in six hours. Six different trials. First three are religious trials, and the second three are civic trials. The first is going to be at the home of Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, the previous high priest. We read about that in John 18. The second is at the home of Caiaphas, which we see right here. The third is before the Sanhedrin. Three religious trials. 
And then he's going to go before Pilate, and then before Herod, and then back before Pilate again, before finally having a sentence pronounced on him, the people calling for his crucifixion. In the first three trials of Jesus, the Jewish leaders here violate a number of laws that they themselves created related to the idea of fair and just proceedings. They instituted these laws. Here are some examples. No trial could happen between sundown and sunrise. It was not allowed in the Jewish courts. No trial could ever be held during Passover. It was not allowed in the Jewish courts. No trial was not to be com- no trial was to be completed on the same day that it began. If you had a trial on one day, you had to at least wait 24 hours for there to be a final verdict. Why? Because overnight there might be some mercy that would enter in. And these were, in fact, laws, not God's laws, but they were laws that the Jewish leadership had set in place for fair trials. Good laws. And they violated every single last one of them. How about God's law? Well, you might remember... The ninth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false witness against Jesus. I mean, it is, it is head to head exactly what God said. You will not do this. You know, what's interesting is the Lord knew when He gave the ninth of the Ten Commandments that that ninth commandment would be violated and would be the cause of Jesus' crucifixion. But there's another of God's laws that the high priest himself violated. I'll show you that in just a moment. But in spite of all this injustice, what's amazing is Jesus kept silent. He could have said several times, you know guys, it is the middle of the night and you're violating your own law. You know, dudes, it's Passover. How about we get back together next week and talk things out? He says not a word. He is absolutely silent. Isaiah said that's the way it would be. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Jesus mounted no self-defense said nothing, gave them nothing. But finally, the high priest adjures him by the living God. By God who lives, answer me this question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus, and I want you to get this, in complete control of the situation, Jesus gives them just enough to push them over the edge. Verse 64. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. In other words, you said it. Yep. That's right. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Your Bible students may remember this, the Son of Man, that phrase. Jesus uses that title a lot, especially in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of his favorite self-designations, the Son of Man. But it's also something the high priest knew was a title for Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Listen to how closely this relates to what Jesus just said. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel wrote, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and all the Jewish scholars and all the Jewish rabbis, even to this day, point to that verse and say, that is about Mashiach. That's about Messiah. 
That's what Jesus said they would see. Laying it out a little more clearly, Jesus could just as easily have said, hey, Daniel 7.13, you read that, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And it freaked them out. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's blasphemed! What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. They went nuts. You can almost imagine them coming across the table at Jesus. But here's the thing to notice. The second law of God, the high priest apparently forgot. He tore his robes. And that was not to be. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 says, The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. It was law according to God. And in the moment, I submit to you, in the moment that the high priest tore his robes, he lost his priesthood. In fact, from that point on, God would not recognize the priesthood anymore. It was over. He ripped himself away from his position. Now who's flying off the handle? (laughs) Caiaphas. From this point forward, the genealogies wouldn't matter. In fact, it's interesting, we've mentioned this before, in AD 70 when the temple burned, all the priestly genealogies were lost. There was no way to account for who was of the line of the priests anymore. It was gone. The only priestly genealogy, if you want to call it that, is the genealogy of Jesus we have in Matthew and in Luke. It's the only one that was preserved after AD 70. A little bit of trivia for you. Curiously, they have discovered that there is a genetic difference in the line of the priests. I mean, just recently they've discovered this. I have a whole book on the DNA of the Jewish priesthood. And they can tell with among people who, who believe that they have that Jewish lineage, that, that Levitical priestly history, when they test them, their DNA is different than other Jews. Very interesting. I think there's a reason for that. We won't get into it tonight. Verse 67. Then they, and this, I just tell you, these next two verses are two of the hardest for me to read. They spat in his face and they beat him with their fists. And others slapped him. And they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? I mean, I remember I remember being a kid on the playground, I think it was third grade, and my friend Mike Harbison really ticked me off. He, he took the side of another friend who's being a jerk to me, and so Mike sided up with him, and I don't know why I did it. I was a third grader. I hauled off and slugged him. Bam! And you know who started crying? I did. I was sick to my stomach that I had done that. It was awful. I picked him up. I'm so sorry. Teacher, I am. I sent me to the principal. I need a beating. I mean, I just lost it. I was a freaky little child. I understand that. But when I read these verses about, I mean, the use of the word fist, I hate that. The slapping and, and the spitting. And then, and then to make fun of him, calling him, you Christ, Mashiach, oh Mashiach, as they slapped him and spit on him. I mean, it's just, it's utter brutality. It's inhuman. You ever see religious people caught up in a frenzy of false judgment? 
I hope you've never been in a place to watch that happen. It's not pretty. It's not pretty when we think ourselves so righteous that we have the right to come down on other people. Well, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, so now Peter's getting a little further out because he's starting to get nervous. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I swear it. I don't know him. I do not know the man. Verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely to you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. You got the accent of a hick from Galilee, man. You got the country bumpkin thing going on. We hear it in your voice. In your voice. Side note. Due to their country hick accents, Galilean Jews were forbidden to read Scripture aloud in the synagogues in Jerusalem. Because the more aristocratic city Jews felt like it was just too demeaning to Scripture to hear them say, well, the Lord saith that this was going to happen. I, did you ever hear Jay Vernon McGee teach on the radio? Love Jay Vernon McGee. First time I heard him, I couldn't listen. I got like two minutes in, I'm like, this guy, come on. And turned it off. It wasn't until I got his commentaries and began reading and studying his commentaries that then I could go back and listen to the radio and go, wow, he is brilliant. What a man of God. But the accent... And Peter had that accent. Now today, personally, I love to hear the Scriptures read in any and every accent, so I say let's get Joe up here and (laughs) have him read away. (laughs) Verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear. Now the fishermen came out of Peter. I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Hens and roosters were not typically allowed in the city of Jerusalem. The priests felt like they were just messy creatures, so best to keep them in the suburbs and the countryside around Jerusalem, but not in the city. And because of that, there are those who believe that Jesus' statement about the rooster crowing was bogus. Couldn't happen. Because you can't hear, roosters couldn't be in the city. Well, a couple of things I'll just say to that. Just because, you know, sometimes you have to deal with trivial matters. For those who say it couldn't have been a rooster crowing, have you ever heard a rooster crow? It's one of the most obnoxious sounds in the entire world. There was one out behind our house, and we lived in Tacoma, remember that? And every morning, it's like, come on! You know, where's the BB gun? A rooster crowing across the Kidron Valley just outside the city walls could easily be heard in the early morning hours. Easily. But even if if not, there's another interesting thing. I've shared with you the Jews and Romans divided the night into four watches. Four different watches. The first watch was 6 to 9 p.m. The second was 9 p.m. to midnight. The third was 12 midnight to 3 a.m. And then the fourth and final watch, the pre-dawn watch, was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And there in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, Every watch included a changing of the guard. Each and every one. On the fourth watch, that pre-dawn watch, there was a trumpet blast that accompanied the changing of the guard. Right around this same time as Peter's denials, a trumpet would sound. 
You know what it was called? It was called the Galenesium, which means the rooster crow. So whether it was an actual rooster in the outskirts of the city, which I think it probably was. I, I think it was an actual rooster. I just think the scripture is too plain about that. But it's also possible it could have been the Galenesium, the rooster crow. Either way, Peter knew exactly what had just happened. Luke 22, verse 60 tells us that immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So he's cursing, he's swearing, he's cussing. I don't know the man, blankety, blankety, blank. And in that moment, the rooster crows. And Luke tells us this amazing statement. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter, wherever he was in the courtyard of the high priest, there were the Sanhedrin, wherever he was, he he could see Jesus. And Jesus turns and looks. I can't even imagine how that must have felt for Peter. The look that would floor a man right there. But I also cannot believe that that look was was anything, anything other than pure compassion on the part of Jesus. Ah, Peter. I told you. How does it feel to realize you have betrayed someone you love? Again, it's mind-boggling. Sunday morning, Ray Rimps talked about Peter's confession, his restoration, but I find it fascinating that Jesus found Peter sleeping those three times in the garden and woke him up three times, and Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, and Jesus would ask Peter three times on the beach of Galilee, do you love me, and restored him to ministry. Three times, three times, three times. Why is that fascinating? Because... Peter wasn't ruined for the task before him. Please hear this. Of all that I've said tonight, of all that we've seen, this is, I think, the most important thing. A failure in the sight of the Lord, even before the Lord, face to face, even as the Lord looks at you and you know you've sinned, and you feel that piercing, compassionate gaze, why did you do this? Even in that moment, you are not ruined for ministry. It is not over for you in this life. You are not done. It takes some growing up and maturing to realize that we are going to sin. I've told you before, the older I get, the more sinful I feel. Because the more aware I am of how filthy I am, of how quickly I slide into moments of sin. And I've talked to person after person after person who suffers from that weight. Gang, yes, you are going to fall. But the beauty and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ is instantaneous restoration. And no matter how far you've fallen... You are not done. You know when you're done for ministry in this world? When you die. Or when Jesus comes again. That's when you're done for ministry in this world. Otherwise, you still have a role to play. God is not through with you. Jesus was not through with Peter. This verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. Hear that again. The sorrow according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Two different types of sorrow. And we see in the story before us, two absolutely different types of men. And please note this, Peter's denial was not apostasy. It was not blasphemy. It was an abject failure. It was terrible, yes. But he did not fall completely away from Jesus. He blew it big time. I think due to a lack 
a combination of a lack of faith and a lack of prayer and a lack of sleep. Put it all together and you got failure. But it wasn't apostasy and it wasn't blasphemy and it wasn't ministry ending. And I believe that's why Luke added that Jesus looked right at him. Because it wasn't a look of condemnation like, Peter, you're done. Get out of here. It was a look of love. Ah, Pete, don't you know I love you? I'm, I'm with you in this moment of your sin. I am aware of you, even as you fail. Incredible. Jesus had said before, Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned again, that word turned again means converted. <laughs> when you've converted, when you have repented, when you've turned around, strengthen your brothers. What? Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fail, and you're going to be restored, and then guess what? You're going to be in ministry once again. You're going to be serving again. You're going to shepherd. That's how great forgiveness truly is. Another man was sorrowful. Judas. Just a few more verses here. Verse Chapter 27 tells us, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate the governor. So the first three trials in Matthew's, in Matthew's writing here are now over. We learn about the other trials in the other Gospels. And now he goes to the civic trials. But watch this, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Okay, he's sorrowful. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Okay, that sounds like the front edge of repentance. I've sinned. It's a recognition. He did the wrong thing. And he threw the... Well, they said, what is that to us? See that, see that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And the Bible says he went away and hanged himself. Which shows where his sorrow led. Again, Paul wrote, For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. That's what Peter's sorrow led to. It was godly sorrow. Judas' sorrow was worldly sorrow, which Paul wrote, produces death. Acts 1.18 is graphic. It says, Falling headlong, Judas burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. That's how he died. He didn't just snap his neck in a hanging. Something happened as he hung himself that bent his body in half and broke him open. It's a brutal, awful way to go. That is worldly sorrow. And I, I caution you, brothers and sisters, against worldly sorrow. We are people of the living God. We have a living hope and we have a true restoration by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. We are not among those who bear a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow produces false guilt. Worldly sorrow makes you sit day after day in in self-loathing. That's worldly sorrow. That is not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow takes you to your knees before God praying for forgiveness and receiving it recognizing the fantastic grace of God that saves us. Jesus had said in John 6.70, Did I myself not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. That word devil that he applied to Judas means a false witness, a false accuser. 
And Jesus prayed in John 17.12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name, which You have given Me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition or waste, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Understand this. Both Peter and Judas failed Jesus miserably. Both of them did. But one had a godly sorrow unto repentance and life. The other had a worldly sorrow guilt-ridden unto his own death. Listen, if you find yourself heartbroken from sin, that's a good thing. It's not bad. It's not bad to hurt or to ache over the realization that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when you're in that place, repent. Turn again. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Allow the Lord to use. As Ray said, oh, it was brilliant Sunday morning, to use every aspect of your life up to this point. God can use all that, even the ugly, bad stuff. He can turn for good and use in your experience that you might go now and strengthen your brothers, strengthen your sisters. And Peter did. He led in the church. He was a strong advocate for Jesus his whole life. And tradition tells us he died crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And if there's any one thing I can pray tonight, Jesus, it's that you would pour your grace out on our hearts and help us to realize and accept our restoration. I pray, Lord, your grace would wash away all false guilt. I pray that your grace would wash away worldly sorrow in light of godly sorrow. I pray that Your grace will wash away bitterness and malice and anger and hurt and anything else, Father, that might keep us in the place where Peter was before Jesus, You restored him. Pour out Your grace in this place. And I pray it not just for everyone here tonight. I pray grace for this entire fellowship. I pray an understanding and an embrace, Lord, of Your grace. And may that embrace grow our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.